Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Welcome to Crossroads this morning, wherever you're watching from, to the people in the room, it is so good to see your faces. Everybody looks prettier when I haven't seen you in five months, you know that? I'm just so excited to be here, and today we're going to continue in our series. I love that we get to see videos of our people. I've known Ron and Carol since I first came to CBC 11 years ago. And as we start talking about who we are and what we value, what what we see is that what we value shapes who we become and who we're becoming. When I got hired on 11 years ago to be the youth pastor, my family is passionate about sports. We value sports. We love sports. I remember the first time my wife watched sports with my family, I think it was the US Open in like 2011, the golf tournament. And she said, I've never seen people watch golf with this much passion. We scream and we yell, we use all of God's words, and we get really, really into it. And that would be true even if it was something we'd never watched before, like bowling. We love sports. I got hired 11 years ago. I went to, as a youth pastor, I went to a Marcus football game. And I remember vividly my experience because it was halftime, and I'm leaving to go to my car because it's halftime, and it's the band. We value sports. One of the mothers comes up to me. Her daughter was in the band. And she said, where are you going? I said, to my car. She said, why? I said, because it's just the band. You know what I should not have said to this mother of a band member? It's just the band, right? Marcus Band is phenomenal. And so she said, it's just the band. Guess what I did? I turned around and marched right back into that and said, I love bands, right? What I say that to say this is that even though in that moment I hadn't valued band life, you know, I started to do because I was around people that did, I started to value watching marching bands for the first time. And so what what matters is because we're going to look at our family values because what it does is whether you've been here 20 years like the Stuarts or whether you've been here two years, what we see is that what we value shapes who we've become and who we're becoming. And so today we're going to look at our first three values. Last week we looked at our mission statement, follow Jesus and make disciples. So our values spell out grace. We're going to get the G, the R, and the A, the gray today, okay, if you will, this morning. And look at them really quickly because we got limited time together. But before we do that, we're going to take some time and set our hearts right. We say it every Sunday. We want to join the conversation of faith and be contributors, not critics. And that's hard to do societally because we are a society that breeds and praises critics. And so we're going to pray right now that the Holy Spirit that is active in this place or wherever you're at might do a work in your heart, that God might speak to you where you are right now and reveal who he is as we follow Jesus and make disciples together. And I'm going to give you space just to say a silent prayer to yourself, and then I'm going to ask that you pray for me that we do a good job talking about our family values this morning. So pray with me. God, I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful for the people in this, in this church, I'm thankful for the larger church body of Jesus Christ that, that gathers together all over the world right now to remember that our God is worthy of worship. Pray as we walk through our family values this morning and look into some scriptures and what they say about it, that, that Holy Spirit, you just encourage us to be people that reflect the values of God. I'd ask you to take a couple minutes right now and say a quick prayer asking the Lord to speak to you this morning.
Then I'd ask that you say a quick prayer just for me. I ask that I do a good job reflecting and teaching to the character of God that we see in our values at CBC. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Love it. All right, so our, our values, like I said, we've got five of them. We're going to be at the G, the R, and the A, and hopefully we're going to move a little quickly this morning, right? So the G, does anybody know what the G is? Not many. Fantastic. That's why we're doing this, everybody. The G at Crossroads is growing people change. It's the first one, and in my opinion, needs to be the first one because it sets the stage for everything else. And when we talk about growing people at Crossroads, we talk about it with a couple assumptions. And the first assumption is simply that you will be growing as a follower of Jesus at Crossroads. One thing we have to realize as we step into our values is that growing is not optional in the life of a follower of Jesus. Discipleship is not discretionary. You don't get the option to say, well, I like the heaven part, but I'm going to stop there. Because what happens is what we talked about last week. If we make Jesus only about admittance into heaven, we take something that's supposed to be transformational and make it transactional. It cheapens and devalues the grace of God. Because when you think about it, what God did was he created and designed a beautiful world full of transformation, not transaction. Look at all different facets of life. I'll take my favorite food. God did not have to make food taste good. God could have made food taste like, you know, kale does all the time, meaning it's good for me, but it's not good for me, if you know what I'm talking about. I had a conversation this morning. Somebody came in here with a hot sports opinion about Memphis barbecue, and I said, I've had it. It's not nearly as good as Texas barbecue. That's, again, not a debate, just like growing and following Jesus. Texas barbecue is way better, and I got to thinking about, like, this analogy this morning. And how beautiful it is that God made food taste really, really good. The first time I had Aaron Franklin's barbecue in Austin, which is kind of, in my opinion, the best, that was a transformational experience. I don't describe that by saying, how was it? I was full. That is not how I describe really good food. And you can pare that down and really spread that across a lot of other facets of life, whether it's your marriage or whether it's parenting or even working, if you're working into how God created you. God made this world to be transformational, not just transactional. And when we talk about growing people, changing, we grow because it's how we're transformed into the image of Jesus. We grow because that's the story arc for the people of God throughout the scriptures. When Jesus talks about his kingdom, he does, we just read it, he starts the Beatitudes by saying what? Blessed are the poor in spirit. The beginning of the gospel is you recognizing that you need the gospel. The beginning of us having a relationship with Jesus is recognizing that we need Jesus and we aren't God ourselves. But then it goes on in 1 John 3, I love this verse. He says, dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we, what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him for we, we will see him as he really is. So the story arc of the Bible for people is that we grow. That we start in this place of poor in spirit and we grow to this place that looks more and more like Jesus. And one day we're going to get to an end when we actually do, we call that heaven. It's a beautiful process of God pulling us and pushing us and growing us because we're going somewhere because God made this world transformational, not just transactional. And there's more depth and beauty there. 
So when we talk about growing people change, we start with the assumption that we're growing as followers of Jesus. Because if God is worth it, then it's worth it to grow and look like him. Anything less cheapens it. And so we start with this idea that growing people change. And so we say, hey, you know what you're going to do? You're going to grow. And then we define grow for you. Growing people, they, they change. We're going to define growth, which is right now a really difficult thing to do. Like at Crossroads, for example, we're having conversations all the time about, hey, how do we measure growth at Crossroads right now? Because before COVID, we didn't do the online thing. We didn't do the video thing. We didn't have live stream views. And there's so many different ways you can parse out or measure growth right now. For instance, Facebook has a couple different metrics for growth. You can judge the church by something called the three-second view. So how many people click on your video for three seconds and then stop? And that view is way higher than the people that make it to the end of my sermons, I promise. But if somebody asks me, Charlie... How many people watched your sermon? If I want to impress them, I'm going with a three-second view. You are sure of that, you know? How we measure growth matters. And so at Crossroads, we're going to say how we measure growth is the change that comes from the transformation that follows following Jesus. Because here's the deal, and, and I hope we talk about it a good bit, but following Jesus is more than just knowledge of Jesus. We don't open the scriptures and read the scriptures to win at Jesus' jeopardy. We don't open the scriptures and know the scriptures to get good grades in classes in Bible school. We don't open the scriptures just to know more intellectually about God because that kind of knowledge isn't as good as experiential knowledge. We open the scriptures because the scriptures teach us about the God that's worthy of our worship. That's the chief end of the scriptures. That's why they're living and active. That's why we parse them out each and every week. That's why we use them to set our family values because they speak to the majesty of God himself. What we see in the scriptures is that the good news of Jesus is more than intellectual, it's incarnational, and there's a difference. And so we're called to know God more than intellectually, but incarnationally, because it's a deeper kind of knowledge. My favorite way to explain this is just parenting 101. I was the parent that took all the classes at the hospital and read three or four books on how to be a better dad than you. I'm competitive, I like sports, right? And so I read all these books and did all these things but you know, what can, you know what can never prepare you for being a parent? Classes and books. Because I might have known all the answers to what it would be like on feeding schedules and what to do when this happens and this happens and this happens and how to change a diaper effortlessly and practice on a dummy doll in the classes, right? I might have done all of that, but I was still getting eight hours of sleep a night and loved all parts of my life. But then you have a kid and you realize that now my knowledge of parenting while the actual intellect stuff might not have changed, and it probably did, it's so much deeper and richer and fuller because it's actually changed who I am now. It's changed how I love my wife. It's changed how I love my church. It's changed how much I sleep in very bad ways. It's changed things, you know? So when we pursue Jesus, we, we define growth by change because God does. And we see it throughout the scriptures. Let me throw a few at you. We'll hit them really quick. Romans 12, 2 is where most people go. It says, don't be conformed to the present world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. Present participle, meaning we're going to keep going in our transformation. The Greek word there is where we get the word morph. So you're going to be changed into something else personally. We see it in, in Romans 8. It says, and we know that all things work together for good, for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. We've all read that verse. We've all said that verse. In COVID, we've lived that verse and hoped into that verse. But it goes on. And it says, after that, where most people stop, 
Because those who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That word there is a different one in the Greek. It literally means to become like something else that already exists or is known. That would be Jesus. So it's this idea that the Bible is saying that you're going to morph into something else that looks like the person and work of Jesus. I love what Galatians 4 says about it. Paul's writing to some people he really loves. And he says, however, it's good to be sought eagerly for a purpose at all times. And not only when I am present with you, my children, I am again undergoing birth pains until Christ is formed in you. This gives us a slightly different lens through which to look at growth. It's not just that you will grow personally. Paul's saying here, I physically hurt with how much I want you to grow to look more like Jesus. This is telling me that my best good for you and your best good for me is that I might want to encourage growth in you. Because that's what it means to follow Jesus, make disciples, live a transformed life that shows a God who's worthy of our worship. It's not just your responsibility, it's mine too. We do this together. That's one of our values for next week. One of my favorites, the last one we'll look at right now is Philippians 1.6. For I'm sure of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day Christ Jesus returns. And and I love this verse because... Most times when it talks about the change that's occurring, that, that he will bring us to somewhere perfect, um, it's, it's, it's individual. In this passage, actually, Paul is addressing the entire, the entire church at Philippi. So we can quote this on an individual level, but it's meant as a corporate one. He's saying to the church, what God started when he planted this church, he will continue in the church as a whole. And what that means for you is your church is going to change. What that means is as an organization, as a church, as followers of Jesus, individually and corporately, we will grow and we will change. We'll sing different songs and we'll make changes to what the building looks like and we'll change the order of service and we'll go online and some things you'll love and some things you won't. But we will change not only individually, but we will change as a church as we follow Jesus more. I think one of the best examples of that is probably six or seven, I don't even know, any more years ago, we made a decision to move from a more class-based model of church Sunday school classes to a small groups model, which is what we do now and what we believe in, because we felt like it created better disciples just for where we were at. And so we made a shift as a church to say, man, we want to do life with people and be vulnerable and, and, and really follow Jesus so that we see life change. So we're going to change as a church because we want to follow Jesus. And that's what it means to grow, is it means to change. All right, so even if the Bible says that, There are times in my life, and maybe not yours, but definitely mine, when I've looked at the scriptures, and I've looked inwardly, and I've said, yeah, but I don't want to. I'm I'm good, right? Like, I'm okay with where I'm at. I don't want to rock the boat a little bit, because with change comes disruption, and I really don't need disruption right now, you know? My favorite definition of change is that change happens when the pain of the status quo becomes greater than the pain of the perceived change. I love that definition. Whenever I think about this definition, I think of tires every single time. My least favorite thing to do as a grown adult is to take my car in to fix any kind of tire. Because you take your car in, you wait painfully long, even if you make a reservation. Somebody needs to open 10 more tire stores in this community so I don't have to wait for three hours if I make a reservation. I took my last time, I took my car to Costco to get it done because everything's better at Costco. And I dropped my car off and had this bubble on the side of my tire. And this service person says, I'm going to go look at your car. I said, okay. And she comes back and she said, 
you are lucky to make it here. And I said, what? And she said, it's a ticking time bomb. And I said, do you know what a bomb is? It's a tire, right? Have you ever had to change one? You just pull over anyway. Um, I said that in my head. And, and, and as I'm going through this, she said, you need all new tires. And that's the second reason why I don't like taking my car to go get tires changed is because no matter how often I change them, they tell me I need all new ones and I don't know what I'm doing. So I say, sure, big sucker. And so I leave and I get new tires. And here's my point is I won't do that until it's absolutely necessary, until I can see the metal or until it's going to endanger my life or my kid's life to keep driving on these tires. Because at that point, when lives are at stake, the pain of staying the same is so far greater than the pain of a couple hours at Costco and a couple hundred bucks. We change when we know that staying the same isn't possible anymore to get us where we want to go. And that's why it's really important when we talk about change to understand that we need it. That's why it's important to quote the Beatitudes and say that we, we, we need to change because we understand who we are in the first place. And then we understand who God is. Because if we say as a people that we don't want to change or we don't need to change, one of two things happens. If we say that we don't want to change or we don't need change, we're either saying that we don't need God because he's not that good or we're really good, or we're saying that we are God. We've got this thing figured out. That's not the message of the scripture, and that's not the message we're going to teach at Crossroads. So we believe in change because we hope for what's better, we hope for what's more, we hope for what God is going to do in the middle of our brokenness, because the pain of staying this way isn't worth it. We grow, and we change, and hopefully a year from now we look different than we do now. We increase in the things that Jesus says he values in the Beatitudes that we read right before the sermon. And it, it happens in a way that isn't instant. We talked about this a lot last week. I love this one quote. It says, to allow, God to, quote, uh, to allow God to work is an admission of inadequacy, but also an acknowledgement of supremacy. It's us acknowledging we need God and that God is better than us. That's what it means to grow and to change. And to not allow that doesn't admit those two things. And so I, I don't want to say that without saying what I said last week, because <laughs> I think it's really important which is this change takes time and is slow. There's a verse in Corinthians 3. He says, And we all with unveiled faces, reflecting the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, which is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Here's my point there. It is a methodical, slow journey. Don't get caught in the trap of starting where you think you need to end. We slowly engage in transformation together. We slowly engage in transformation through the work of the Holy Spirit and us. We can't do it alone. In Galatians 3, it's one of my favorite stories because it's so who I am. Paul speaks to these people that kind of added some things to the gospel and he chastises them. He says, don't ever do that again. That takes away from Jesus. And then he stops down and he says, hey, why are you trying to grow in the Lord, be sanctified, look more like Jesus? Why are you trying to do this all on your own? Was it not God that saved you? Why would you leave him out of the process now? It's by his power and his spirit and his might that you grow as you engage in the things that might cause you to change. I love how we define spiritual disciplines at Crossroads. We say spiritual disciplines are the way that we participate in the work that only God can accomplish, the work of changing hearts. So it's this commingling of God and his spirit and us pursuing life in Jesus together and that results in change. It's a value we have at Crossroads. And that might look like 
leading a group that's definitely going to look like you joining a small group at some point. That's the main means by which we change at CBC as we do life with one another. That might look like serving. That might look like serving in kidsmen. That might look like a lot of different things. But we change as we engage in what God is doing all around us. And so as we engage in what Christ is doing, he's slowly and methodically changing us and we celebrate that because that change is a result of growth. It's a result of us recognizing that God's ways are better than my ways and we're becoming something that's valuable because it preaches the gospel of transformation, not just transaction. But here's what I know. I know that change people by and large, you know what they do? Really all people, they tell people about what they love, right? And that's our second value. So growing people change and then redeemed people can't keep quiet. Let me throw a couple numbers out at you. I, I think the social media game is really, really interesting to me. I'm not really on social media much. I don't particularly enjoy it. I get on now for the people. I have a Facebook Live at 2 p.m. and I usually mess that up in some capacity. And so I got online and I looked at just the growth of social media and it's really astounding. Because what social media is, is it's a place for you to tell people who follow you what you love or what's going on in your life. So let me give you some numbers that I didn't know about. Facebook is the largest social media presence we have. 2.45 billion people are on it monthly. 1.62 billion daily users. You know the fastest growing demographic for Facebook right now? 65 plus, by the way, which shocked me. Because when the parents got on it, guess what? The kids got off it, everybody, you know? So even, I'm saying, we like to share things, whether we're 15 or whether we're 50. And then we see the rise in Instagram, which is a more younger social media platform that has 1 billion users each month. There are 500 million people that post to an Instagram story every single day. The average Instagram user spends about 28 minutes on that platform every day. What that reveals is simply that we are a people who like to share what we love and what inspires us and what scares us and what's happened to us. We are a people who loves to share things. And even if social media isn't your jam, like it's not mine, I'm betting you still share the things in your life with the people that you love. We are a people that intrinsically share things. So let's talk about how that relates to the gospel in CBC. Let's talk about what God wants and how he's going to get there, right? This is what God wants. It's just straight from the Bible. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. All who, who desires all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth, God's desire is that all people might know him because that's how he created and he loves. He wants to see no man perish, no man not know him. So if that's God's goal, we have to ask the question, how is he doing it? And this is a really popular verse in one of my favorites, 2 Corinthians 5. All this from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. I love what Ed Stetzer says about this. He said, God made relationships his chosen delivery system for the gospel of hope. Think about that. Now look, we can play the if I was God game all day long. Would I put Chuck in charge of the gospel? No, I would not. But he did. That's profound and inspiring and scary. God said, I'm going to let my people in their transformed lives tell people about me. And so when we say redeemed people can't keep quiet, we have to understand that's because that's God's idea, not ours. And it's also our inclination to tell the people we love about the things we love. 
There's a quote that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. You've probably heard it. It says, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words, or use words if necessary. And I think it's absolutely true. It's what we talked about. It kind of came out of a place when Christians were talking about Jesus, but not living like Jesus in the 12th century. And so he said, this is the point of the gospel, that you do something. The gospel is not just intellectual. It is incarnational. Don't forget that. Scott McKnight says the proper response is to declare who he is by the way we live. One of my favorite quotes of all time is by Henry Nouwen, and he said, I wonder more and more if the first thing shouldn't be to know people by name, to eat and drink with them, to listen to their stories and to tell your own, and to let them know with words, handshakes, and hugs that you do not simply like them, you truly love them. That is what Jesus did. So we cannot, when we say redeemed people can't keep quiet, reduce that down to simply say some words. It's how we live because the way we live gives impact and weight to our words. And I think we know that. I think by and large, we know that we, on the other hand, kind of flip that sometimes when people quote that and they say, well, hey, have you ever like told somebody about Jesus? I say it with my life. Have you heard that? And that's awesome. You, you should. But here's the problem with that and the problem with this quote is that most people say that Assisi never actually said this because St. Francis of Assisi was a wealthy guy that gave away all his stuff to go and build the church again. He felt like he heard from God in the middle of the 12th century um, A.D., and so he gave everything up, and he became an itinerant preacher. The, the first biography written on him was by a guy named Thomas of Salano, and I'm going to quote you what he says about St. Francis of Assisi. He said, sometimes he preached in five villages a day, often outdoors. In the country, Francis often spoke from a bale of straw or a granary doorway. In town, he would climb onto a box or steps of a public building. He preached to any who gathered to hear the strange but fiery little preacher. If that's not how we describe me, I am missing my mark from a sissy. He was sometimes so animated, the passion passion in his delivery, that he, quote, his feet moved as if he were dancing, which is why Baptists don't talk about him, right? So, we have this little man who went around preaching the word of God to people. He goes on to say his, his book about him says, his words were neither hollow nor ridiculous, but filled with power of the Holy Spirit, penetrating the marrow of the heart so that listeners were turned to it in great amazement. Here's one thing we can't do. We can't divorce the action of speaking the gospel from the action of sharing the gospel. We can't do it. That's how God created this world to work. He literally spoke creation into existence. There is a power with words to woo people that we can't get around if we only use our lives, which we need. I had a prof in college at Wheaton in grad school, and I loved his quote. He said, his name is Dwayne Litfin, and he said, the gospel, it's, in sim- it's simply impossible to preach the gospel without words. The gospel is inherently verbal, and preaching the gospel is an inherently verbal behavior. In Romans 10, Paul says, how can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching it to him? In Psalms 107, it says, share your story of salvation so that people might know. Simply put, sometimes I think we use this phrase to get us out of hard conversations because sometimes it's difficult. There was a, a a research study done from Barna a couple years ago, I think it was 2018. I'm going to read you some of it because it's fascinating. It says, they found that almost all practicing Christians believe that part of their faith means being a witness about Jesus from 95 to 97% among all generational groups. 
from millennials all the way up to the elderly, 95 to 97% said it is absolutely imperative that I witness about Jesus. But then he goes on to say this. He says the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to know Jesus, 94% to 97%. Millennials in particular feel equipped to share their faith to others. For instance, almost three quarters of millennials say they know how to respond when someone raises the question about faith, about 73%. And that is actually, they they feel like they're gifted at sharing their faith with other people at about 75%. That's higher than all the other demographics, Gen Z, boomers, and and the elderly. But then this was fascinating. It says, despite this, millennials are unsure about the actual practice of evangelism. Almost half of millennials, 47%, agree at least somewhat that it is wrong to share your personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share your faith. So they know it's good, they think it's the best good for people, but they think it's inherently wrong to share their faith with people that don't also share their faith. That's heartbreaking to me. And and it is because I think that there's a power that comes with words that, that we can't reach when we only live it out. And there's a power with living it out that we can't reach if we only use words. We need both. That's how God created this to work. So when we say redeemed people can't keep quiet, we have to know what that means. That we walk out the ways of Jesus and we talk about the ways of Jesus. And is it comfortable all the time? No. Is it worth it? Yes. So we have conversations about faith. We have conversations about our family. We have conversations about what we believe because we believe God is worthy of worship (laughs) because he's changing us. But it's not just enough to talk about Jesus. How we talk about Jesus matters, which is our third and final value this morning, which is authentic community is messy. It's just messy. So you can go back to all those Instagram stats. A year ago when traveling didn't seem so weird, I was in New York And some friends of mine live in Manhattan, um, I'm sorry, Brooklyn now, next to this one road with the Manhattan Bridge behind it. And I think it got deemed, he told me, the most Instagrammable spot in the country. I didn't know what that sentence meant, but he explained it. The most Instagrammable spot in the country. And you'll get online and you can just search for this location and you see people and it's just them on the street alone with this picturesque building and this Manhattan Bridge behind them. It's amazing. But when you show up there in real life, there's hundreds of people taking pictures there. People brought wardrobe changes. I'm not making that up. Entire wardrobe changes to this Instagram shoot. But when you look on their Instagram, it feels like they're the only ones there. My point is this, is that we live in the reality of the present, but we show people the the false reality of the perfect all the time. That's what social media's, I think, key flaw is, is it doesn't create a space that's honest to where we are now. It's the false reality of the perfect versus the current reality of the present. I think we do that as a church too. I think we do. I think we come together and we pretend like we have everything together because we want to show people that we're worthy of church. That's the opposite of why church is here in the first place. We're here because we're not worthy of God. And he still says, I love you. Think about that. It goes back to how we see the church. Do we see the church as, as a fortress or, or a hospital? Do we see the church as somewhere that we have to gain admittance into by being good enough? Or do we see the church as somewhere that makes us look more like Jesus because we weren't like Jesus in the first place? And that changes people's expectations of what it looks like to live in this community. I mean, if you, you want a better example of this, we, we kind of have this idealistic view when we read the scriptures. So like Acts 2.42, the quintessential verse on what it looks like in the first church. It says they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. 
It says reverential awe came over all of them. And then it just goes on to say, and they lived together and they shared everything and they sang Kuba every night over bonfires and God was good and life was good and everything was fantastic. And so we use that as a matrix for what church should look and feel like. That's the perfect. The problem is that's not the church in the New Testament. <laughs> that's not the church in the New Testament. Paul writes to the Corinthian church. It's actually the longest letter he writes to anybody. If you put the two together, it's 29 chapters, longest book in the New Testament. And the Corinthian church was plagued with a lot of problems. The Corinthian church had issues that we today would think would be very, very, very unhealthy. I'll give you a couple of them. They, they strongly had divisions of which pastor they liked more. I'm an Apollos guy, I'm a Timothy guy, I'm a Paul guy. I'm not going to show up to church if he's preaching because that's not my guy and he's not very good. I just don't feel fed when he teaches me. You know, you know what I'm talking about? They also had issues with um, conflict. So much so, Paul writes him and says, guys, you're supposed to be in the same family. Stop suing one another. That's not what love looks like. They, they were so mad at each other, they started suing one another. They, they actually had this huge immorality problem sexually and slept with a bunch of different people. And Paul says, don't do that. That's not what the kingdom of God is about. They had communion issues, communion issues. If we can't all get together on communion, we got big problems. They come together for a full meal. And richer people would get there first, and they'd eat all the food and get drunk on all the wine, and they'd watch the poor people starve. And Paul says, don't do this. This is not fair. This is not good. They'd get together, and they'd say, you know what's better than your spiritual gifts? My spiritual gifts. They say, I'm going to prove it to you. God gave me these three because he loves me more. But grace is good, right? I mean, this is what that church did. If any, there was a messed up church. Look at the church of Corinthians. Do we think this church is a fortress or a hospital? Churches have always been a hospital. We have to understand the current reality of the present and not compare it to the false narrative of the perfect. We're moving towards that, but we're not that yet. And when we're authentic, we tell that story about a God who is working and is it done working. That's very important. When we tell that story, it allows God to work in our midst. It encourages growth. When we tell that story, it tells more fully the story of how God is transforming us and how we're changing. Because what we need to know is that as we're authentic with one another, it allows us not to be perfect because God already is. It allows others to be encouraged by that and allows us all to grow together. I love what Brene Brown says about vulnerability. It fits so well. She said, the irony is that we attempt to disown our difficult stories to appear more whole or more acceptable, but our wholeness, even our wholeheartedness, actually depends on the integration of all our experiences, including the falls. So is it, Something I'm proud of when I make mistakes? No. But does it mean that God's still working on me? Yes. And I'm not going to pretend to be a pastor up here that has everything in line, that's a perfect marriage, and as a kid that, that actually listens to what I say. None of those things are true, especially the last thing is the farthest from the truth. But I'm going to get up here and say God's working on me. That, that as I grow and as we grow together, God is doing something in our midst. That this is a place for broken people to find a perfect Jesus. And that's why it's important that authentic community is messy, not perfect, because God's not done with us yet. And so as we talk about our values, we are formed by them. We are shaped by them. We know that God is doing something as we remind ourselves of our values, as we live them out each and every day. And that's why we call it good news, <laughs> because we get to tell the story of a God who's changing, who's transforming we get to tell a story of a God who's good. We get to tell a story of a God who uses imperfect people to make things better. And that's the gospel. And so we believe that growing people change. And we believe 
that authentic community is messy and we believe that we can't be quiet about it because that means that God is good. Let me pray for us.